right, well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. And by way of introduction, as a pastor, there are some of the weirdest things that people will bring up to me. Sometimes people will start to pull out of certain portions of Scripture or, quite frankly, they'll watch something on YouTube that's really wacky. And they'll use a couple of different verses out of context out of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to bring them some kind of weird new doctrine. First and foremost, there's a classic test. The test is this. If it's new, it is not true. If it is true, it is not new. So if you are getting your doctrine, a new doctrine, from YouTube, and they're using a few different verses, please use that 2020 vision. 2020 vision, as you've all been well taught, to read the first 20 verses before and the, first, and the last 20 verses after to understand it. But I bring these things up by way of introduction because in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're going to be talking about uh, cutting yourself. We're going to be talking about dietary laws. We're going to be talking about tithing, all these random things. And we're going to fit it in its context there in Deuteronomy with the nation of Israel. And then we're going to talk about its overall context as New Testament sanctified believers and what that means for us. Because sometimes when we hear something that's, out, uh, that's strange, or maybe we've heard something that's from the religion of churchianity, we begin to think that that's a correct application. You'll see what I mean in just a few minutes. I just wanted to prep you so you can see it. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and we're going to hit the first few verses. Lord, we thank you so much for your word as it continues to guide and direct us, to put us straight, Lord, to bring us back on the path, and also to see things in context, Lord, to see a balance, a proper balance of things. Help us to be in your word. Help us to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. First, original context. In that culture, at that time, all of the nations around Israel were cutting themselves, tattooing themselves. When somebody died, it was a period of mourning. It was to show your, your pain. It was to show your sorrow. And they were trying to outdo each other in, in showing this amount of grief. That's the original context. The context here in the scripture is the nation of Israel is not to be like any of the Gentile nations. They're not to be like anyone else. Most importantly, they're not to hurt themselves or to mark themselves or to show this extreme mourning because their loved ones were going to be with God. Their loved ones were going to be in a better place, that God was in control. And so there's to show that. Remember, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. They fell, so only the Levites were called to be priests. And then they continued to stumble and fall again, and God continued to restore them. But they were to be a light to the world. But they weren't because they're sinners. And the law can meet, bring no one to God. It can only show our need for a Savior. So let's talk about some context here. Why is it say... You can't cut yourself. Number one, you should not cut yourself, period. End of story. No explanation is given. Don't do it. And if you are doing that, if that's something you're trying to hide from other people or you know people are doing it, they need help. 
Most importantly, they need to know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He cut himself so we don't have to. He gave his body as a living sacrifice. But the other application here that we saw in the book of Leviticus is not to get tattoos for the dead. So the question then in the religion of churchianity is you'll be told you can't get tattoos as a Christian. That's not technically what the Bible says. In its context, you're not supposed to get tattoos there in the book of Leviticus for the dead, to be like the other Gentiles. Now, as a general principle, do I believe that you should get a tattoo? There are plenty of people in this room right now that I know personally that will tell you they have tattoos that they regret. So be wise. Be wise. But we live under grace. The context here is don't shave your head. Don't do these things for the dead because, verse 2, you're a holy people. You're supposed to be separate. And so here's the general application. We need to think as Christians, Christ followers who are saved by grace, I can do all things. I can do all things because God has given me that freedom, but I will not come under the power of any, the scripture says. We need to think about, A, what does this do to me personally? How does this affect me? How does this liberty bring me closer to Christ? If you are struggling with alcohol, and you're like, well, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. I can drink. Can you, though? For some people, the answer is a 100% no. You're destroying your life. You're destroying your body. You're destroying every single person around you. Don't use that liberty for destruction. And you can fill in the blank, whatever kind of liberty it is. All kinds of different things. B, second thing we need to think of, is what does this do for other people? As Christians, we need to think about how exercising a liberty, does that bring other people closer to Christ or does it bring them farther away? How do other people see this? How could the nation of Israel, how could they be a light to the world if they were exactly like the world? If they mourned for the dead the same way as the world, they didn't follow God's law, they just did everything exactly the way as everyone else, you're not going to be a light to anyone. You're not representing God. We have freedom in Christ, and as we continue in this chapter, and we go through the different laws that they were going through, we're to see these two different concepts for us. Are we using the grace of God? Are we using our freedom in Christ to glorify God and bring people closer to God and ourselves or farther away? We're going to talk about this a little bit more, but let's keep reading now. Verses 3 through 8, it seems like we're going to change the subject. It is a different subject, but all these things in context work together. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer. For us South Carolinians, the deer, kosher, in both sides of the Testaments, right? Okay, just saying. Roe deer, wild goat, mountain goat, antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax. For they that chew the cud but do not have cloven hooves, they are unclean for you. Also the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat of their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. 
So let's just get this super simple. If you want to go through this a little bit more in detail, we talk about it a lot in the book of Leviticus when we went through the book of Leviticus and its dietary laws. You can't eat any animal as a Jew in that time period that doesn't have a split hoof, so horses are out because horses eat grass, but they have a solid hoof, so you can't eat that. So a split hoof eats grass. Some have split hoof, but they don't eat grass. Can't do that. Very simple. Now, I find it Interesting, this is just a general observation. This is not a spiritual application that we are seeing more and more that label of this is a grass-fed animal. This is a grass-fed animal. This is a grass-fed animal. And it just seems that there are general health applications to God's word. We're going to talk about that a little bit because that's why I was coaching you guys in the introduction. People start bringing some wacky stuff out. Then they're like, well, you know, if you want to be closer to Jesus and follow his law, obviously, obviously you can't eat pork. Obviously, you can only eat grass-fed, wild-caught, range animals. Obviously, you must be vegan. Obviously, you must follow, follow the, the Daniel fast. Obviously, you should be fasting three times a week. What do you mean you eat more than once a day? And then they start bringing all these weird spiritual application. Listen, he who the Son has set free is free indeed, the Bible says. All things are lawful for me. Get off my back. I am tired of emails and essays and people approaching me to try and bring me some weird thing. I can get tattoos. I can shave my head. I can eat pork. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Now, I don't want to use my liberty, though, to stumble anyone. I want to be a light to the world. I want people to see me and see my life and say, wow, I want to be a Christ follower. And then when I mess up, I want them to know that's 100% me. That's not the Lord. I want to talk about this a little bit more, but I want to get a little deeper into the text. So let's read some more of these dietary rules in verses 9 through 21. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, and the kite after their kinds, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds. The little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe. I have no idea what that is. And the bat. Verse 19. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates and that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Yes, you can give the roadkill to your employees. The Bible. No, no, let's come back. Let's come back. So when it comes to fish of the sea, you can only eat, again, we just want this the simplest levels that I can understand, has to have fins, have to have scales. Scales and fins. So if it has fins but no scales, catfish is out. Has to have fish and scales. Sea urchins are out. Oysters are out. Clams are out. Lobsters are out. But if you think about it, if you think about it, 
a lot of the things that we eat that have, oh, don't eat any wild clams or oysters right now because there's a lot of bacteria in the water. See, we know that. You don't have that test at that time. So again, there seems to be physical health benefits that keep the nation of Israel healthier than the other areas at that time. Why do I keep saying seems, generally? Because people will start taking that as gospel truth, and then they'll start looking at people, other Christians, and saying, well, they're not as elite as I am because they eat lobsters and I don't. That does not build up the body of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about that more specifically in a minute, but let me get back to the context here. With the birds... You can't eat any predatory, and you can't eat any carry-on, you know, anything that eats dead animals. You can't eat that. I don't know a single person on this planet that drives by those vultures on the side of the road and says, man, I can't believe God won't let us eat those. <laughs> but if you think about it, how come we don't feel that way about all sin? Man, I can't believe God won't let me have adultery. But at the same time, we're looking at it disgusted and we're laughing about it. No, we're tempted. You get tempted by things like that. Why is it that we're tempted about the things that destroy us? Our sinful nature, the Bible just being proved once again. But the same thing is true. The same thing is true with specific doctrines. The enemy will try and magnify a certain doctrine in somebody, so that's all they think about. Let me give you some examples. Eschatology. I love eschatology. Eschatology is scriptural. I have never heard from any other doctrine some of the weirdest, weird Christian things and very intelligent people telling me ridiculously dumb things than I do about eschatology. What, give me an example. Well, uh, I remember early in my Christian walk seeing a heated discussion over whether or not a certain person uh, in the European Union was the Antichrist or not. The Bible tells us to look for Jesus Christ and his glorious return. It does not tell us to try and figure out who the Antichrist is. Let me tell you a secret. He wasn't the Antichrist, either one of them. But these guys were getting hot over this thing. Or some Illuminati that's controlling the planet. Who cares? Or what party's doing what? Or who's doing this or that? Or let's change it to something else. We talked about dietary laws. I have never heard some of the smartest people in the planet saying some of the silliest things in the church than when it comes to dietary restrictions. Or I'll give you another one, Sabbath day doctrines. Whether a Christian should have a Sabbath day and what that Sabbath day is like. And then people start going down these weird rabbit trails, and then they start bringing out texts like Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Lamentations or Ecclesiastes or somebody quoting something in the book of Acts or something out of context in Daniel or Revelation. And I'm, and I'm looking at this person. This is pastor uh, confession time. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I tell this person that's the dumbest scriptural thing I've ever heard lovingly so they leave edified? How do you do that? Well, if you're my closest friends, I just say that's dumb. <laughs> now, I'm passionate about this because it really saddens me as a Christian when we miss the forest for the trees. It saddens me as a Christian when we have people that get caught up in a particular thing, whatever that thing may be, especially when it's spiritual, 
And you see them, what we say in, uh, in, in English saying is, you get wrapped up around the axle. You get twisted up. You get tied into something where you, it's hard to get yourself out of it. There, there are important principles that we have to, to, to get at. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to talk about the dietary laws because there are spiritual applications and there are practical applications. The practical ones are important. The general health of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was better. We can say that scientifically. We just use an example, clams and oysters. You know, they just weren't allowed to eat it at all. Nobody's getting sick. They were not worried about mercury levels. They're not eating roadkill. So if that animal has bacteria growing for the last 48 hours or 78 hours in there and the health risk is, incredible, is a lot higher for that, that's not a risk because it's completely cut out. The spiritual application is far more important than the practical one, and we miss that. They are to be a light to the world. Did you see that in verse 21? I thought it was 21. Chapter 14, every creeping thing. It's verse 21 at the end. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. That's the purpose. The purpose was not to make them healthier. Generally speaking, there's multiple levels when you follow the Lord, and they're all good. Just do what the Bible says. If you would understand it or not, you're, generally, you're, you're always going to go better off. The only time you're not is persecution, and then you're still spiritually better off anyway. The actual application, the intention is listed there. They're to be separate and different from the rest of the world. They are to be shown to be God's chosen and holy people. That's the whole purpose. We are to be the salt and the light of the earth as Christians. We are called to be different, not in this world. We're not to love this world. And they had a practical, visual way of doing that. How do I know that spiritual application is correct? Because in the book of Acts, Peter gets into an argument with God. Never good to argue with God. When God says to do something, don't say, but Lord. Don't do it. See, in Acts chapter 10, Peter is called by God, has a vision from him that comes down on a cloth, all these unclean things, pretty much everything we just read that God said don't touch. But what happens in Acts chapter 10? Verse 13, a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Used to be my life verse, but not anymore. But Peter said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you see that? What God has cleansed, you must not call common. For this was done three times. And the object was taken up into, uh, into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house. And stood before the gate. So what is the Bible talking about? And it gives clarification there. Peter was told, crack open the lobster, crack open the clams. You can eat whatever you want now. I've cleansed it all. So what was the original intention of the dietary laws? Why did God tell him to do that besides just making them healthier? When Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, he brought in the Gentiles. All who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved both Jew and Gentile. And so when Peter is to be eating of that food, it is showing that the dietary laws have been completed in who, by what, and how. In Christ, 
on the cross, the law is fulfilled. No one is under the law anymore. Nobody is under the law anymore. And, it, and Peter says, not so, Lord. No, Lord. Now, good intention. He's trying to be obedient to the Bible. But the, the Lord is saying, it's done. It's completed. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so as it is finished, Peter's wondering what that means. Just for us guys and gals that are not very smart, Cornelius is a Gentile. There's a unification between Jews and Gentiles. They can eat together. They can fellowship together. They can eat different foods together. Paul clarifies this when he's talking about meat offered unto idols. He says there's no power under them. But what is Paul's principle there? But if it stumbles my Gentile brother, I will not eat it. Again, the principle, is this bringing me closer to God? Is this bringing the people around me closer to God? And so we see now, yes, unless you're allergic, go ahead and eat that bacon if you want to. If it's separating you from God and you feel like, oh, I just don't want to do it, that's fine. But stop putting a religious burden on the people around you because we are preaching freedom in Christ. The world today in our society believes we are the faith of no, the religion of no. You can't have fun. You can't do anything. It's just whatever you can't do. And what we need to go to the whole world and say, no, we are the faith, the true and living God, faith in the true and the living God, and we have freedom, complete freedom in him. And we have the freedom to say no. Do you have the freedom to say no? And that's what we need to be sharing out there. Because I keep preaching about being under these religious trips that we put ourselves on. I know people that believe I am not qualified to be a pastor because I have a tattoo. Because of those verses taken out of context. We just said they're taken out of context. That'd be like saying, I can't be a pastor because I eat bacon. Full disclosure, I enjoy the stuff. (laughs) And Acts chapter 10 says I'm okay. Will I die a year earlier? Will I have clogged arteries? Possibly. Possibly. Lord's in control of that too. But then you see people that are under bondage, and they think they're more spiritual than you are because they have less liberty than others. And it could be about anything that's taken wildly out of context. I'm going to talk about that more in a little bit, but I want to show you an example of legalistic bondage today. So some of you may be like, that's just a really nice kitchen. I got this from Shabbat.org. It is listed under, uh, I think it was JewishWomen.com or JewishWomen.org. I just want to make sure it gets its proper reference. Now, you may be thinking, that's just a nice kitchen. How is that an example of You can see that there's a line down the middle of the kitchen. There are two sinks. There are two fridges. There are two stoves and two ovens because we see here, In the end of verse 21, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That one verse has been added onto for generation after generation by Jewish rabbis so that there is no such thing as a kosher cheeseburger. Some, not all, some very conservative ultra-Orthodox Jews will not allow milk products and meat products to be washed, the, the plates of it to be washed in the same sink. They will not allow the products to be in the same fridge. They will not cook them on the same stove. 
uh, a part of that article, which was very interesting to me, contemporary, written in the last few weeks, said that you should have a third oven for cooking um, your special Shabbat bread, that it should be in your third one, if you can. And it gave different rules and exceptions. It says if it accidentally crosses over, there's a special way of cleansing with boiled water. That's not freedom. That is not freedom. That is bondage. So I just wanted to give you guys a visual representation of how these things can just continue to be expounded on. That's not God's word. What is God's word there? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's what it says. And they've taken it to such an extreme that they won't wash plates in the same sink. Now, I want to be very clear. Not all Jewish people do that. Only a certain group within a certain section of uh, the Jewish law says to do that. They have wildly different degrees on how they follow these commandments, which is what Jesus spoke about as he was walking on this earth. When they were upset with him for eating heads of grain, they said, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Fascinating. Are we then putting ourselves under religious bondage? Are, are we trying to say that these certain things are, make you a better Christian than somebody else? Let's read some more now. Let's read verses 22 through 23. You shall, sure, shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, of the firstborn of your herds, of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Emphasis here on you shall truly tithe. The Lord knows his people, and he knows that they will figure out a legal way to tithe less. No, you need to really tithe. Tithe a, a specific amount. Don't try and get your way out of it. But we're going to talk about some different contexts here. I want us to understand, though, that they were to tithe of their harvest. They were to tithe of the grain. They were to tithe of all of their income. But they're not to be, they weren't tithe of their assets. This has a personal application to me. Now, this personal application is going to upset some folks. I talk, we talk about freedom in Christ, and then you'll never, no one is criticized more than a pastor. The way I do things, the way I say things, the way I share things. And good or bad, I just don't care. I just want to do what the Lord says to the best of my ability, and I'm going to make mistakes, and I pray he corrects me. When it says here, though, you are to tithe of your grain for that field of your, what produces, and we're going to see it again here in a little bit, it's to tithe of the increase, to tithe of the gain. So for me personally, I tithe off my net income. And then off my net income, if I get a return, a tax return, I tithe that too. So I tithe 10% of my return. Now, there are some people that say, oh, you're shortchanging the Lord. It's gross. You need to tithe off your gross. Okay, go take that up with the boss. Now, tithing is a very, very important part of our fellowship with Christ. Do you have to tithe? Now, that's the, that's the, the exact next question. Do you have to? I just, I just made a case earlier that you don't have to do anything. You're free in Christ. You have been truly set free indeed. When you go before the Lord 
It doesn't have a list of your assets and income, and there's not a tally. Oh, you're $15 short. <laughs> Too bad. Oh, you tithe exactly 10%. Enter into the joy of the Lord. No. No, it's are you covered in the blood of Jesus Christ or not? You're, you're completely set free indeed. So if you're upset about what I'm saying, chill. You have to go before the Lord and make an account. So, question then is, well, the tithing is an Old Testament principle, Mike. And now you're just telling us that all these Old Testament principles don't count. What is the purpose of the tithing? It says there at the end of verse 23, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. In the, in the Living Bible, it is directly translated The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. That's the literal translation. I don't like to pick translations to suit what I wanted to say, but in the original language, that is what is emphasized. The purpose of tithing is for you to learn to put God first in your life. And if you're not, well, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to make that accusation. I want to read verses 24 through 27, and then we're going to go into some more scripture here. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or for sheep, for wine or similar drink, or whatever your heart desires. You shall eat, therefore, before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Verse 27, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. He's not supposed to have any fields, so he can't give anything at all from that type of offering. But what do we see here? Another great principle. God doesn't want it to be a burden. So what's happening here is if you have a field that's too far from Jerusalem and you can't bring it in to fellowship with God, because that's the purpose. You bring in your tithe, your grain offering, you have a heave offering, remember in Leviticus, and then you have that fellowship meal with God. They don't have access. They don't have the Messiah. That's the only way they can come to God. Ritual cleansing, nation of Israel, be a male, enter in, in front of a priest, a certain way, then you can have a fellowship meal with God. But if you can't do it, if it's impossible for you to bring it, change it over to money and bring what you can. Because what is the purpose there? Find that text here. It's the end of verse 26. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. Rejoice. It's not a burden. It's a burden. Listen, this is important. I know it hurts some feelings. It's a burden for you to tithe because God is not first in your life. Your money's first. God is second. Your, your, your money's more important than God is. Hey, don't take it up with me. That's between you and God. Don't give us, if, you, if you're going to start tithing and you think it's because we need the money, then go tithe somewhere else. This is between you and God. Go give it to a missionary or something. At the end of the day, you're doing it because you're more important than he is. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't. Remember the original principle here, to put God first in your life. Jesus tells us quickly, very, very simply, where your money is, there your heart will be also. You may be thinking, I'm 16 years old. I'm 17 years old. 
I make $30. What's the big deal? The big deal is, is God first in your life or not? It's a general principle. I'm on food stamps. I don't make any money. Is God first in your life or is he not? I make a million dollars. I make $10 million, $100 million. You know how much money that is? Spread it around. I'm not here as a fundraiser. It's not a fundraiser for the church. The principle is you say, you sing, you come here and you sing, God, you're first in my life. I give you my life. I give you my praise. You sing all those things. And it's like when it comes to time, well, he doesn't need it. I need it more. Okay. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a good steward if I don't teach you the spiritual principles. Uh, verses 28 through 29 said that the very, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up with your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So question was, is tithing a New Testament requirement or not? Is it an Old Testament law? That only sticks to the Old Testament and we just give whatever we want? Because the Bible says clearly we are to be cheerful givers and that where your heart is, where your um, money is there, your heart will be also. But is the 10% tithing a New Testament principle? Well, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that it predates the law itself. So it technically predates the law. In fact, Hebrews 7 verse 5 through 9 says, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood, having a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. And blessed is him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there... He receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. So what's the argument there? What, if you're not tracking, back in the book of Genesis, Abraham comes to this town and makes offerings to this strange man named Melchizedek. He's not from the seed of Abraham. He's not from the child. He just appears out of scripture from nowhere. In the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is one of the central figures, because Jesus is our great high priest, but he's not from Abraham's lineage. He is not from the Aaronic covenant. He's from the order of Melchizedek, outside of the nation of Israel. It's a symbol that he's the eternal high priest. And Abraham gave 10%. He gave tithes of the spoil of war to this, and he worshiped God in front of Melchizedek. Why am I bringing this all up? Because this tithing principle is before the nation of Israel, before Abraham, it's before the law is given. We also have New Testament examples in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, this is Paul speaking to 1 Corinthians, which we're starting on Sunday. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Multiple churches now. On the first day of the week, Sunday, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. 
And when I come, whoever appro you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Well, the, the scholar will be like, well, you know, they gave to the missionaries in Jerusalem. Well, they weren't missionaries. They were starving because they weren't allowed to be in the local economy anymore. They, when you give your life to Christ in Israel at that time, they, act, they get, had a funeral for you. They said you were dead. So they couldn't go to the market. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They couldn't hold jobs. They had to either work with the Gentiles or starve. So Paul was sending money back from the churches in the Gentile churches to support Israel. But we see that there's a general principle here. I want to go back to that verse. It says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, you know, from your extra. If you don't have it and you can't do it, I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel guilty because of the certain amount. But I am doing you a disfavor as a teacher, as a Bible teacher, if you miss the principle itself. Is God first in your life or not? When we fast, what are we saying? God is more important than me eating. God is more important than my present comfort. God is more important than my tastes and my desires. When we put time aside for the Lord, we're saying, Lord, you're more important than my time. You're more important than the other things I could be doing. Why is it any different with your wallet? We put ourselves first with all of our expenses. What we buy, the things that we buy for entertainment, that we buy for food, the things that we buy for our clothes, the things that we buy for fuel to go on trips, the things we buy in our vehicles, the things we buy on our phones, the games that we buy, the movies that we watch, the shows that we have, all that. So who are we feeding with all that money? Ourselves. And here we have a biblical principle that says, put God first. Now, I said all that to say this. If you go to a church or you're listening to a pastor and that's all they're ever talking about, and they make it seem like God is broke or the ministry is going to end or the whole world is going to come to an end or you're going to die of sickness and, and torture if you don't give money, it is time to turn that off, tune that out, and get out of it. Personally, if you feel like there's angst in this sermon, it's because I don't like teaching it. I don't like talking about it. I don't even, because there's so, there's so many people that abuse it. That's why we have expositional Bible teaching here. It makes me teach things I don't want to teach. I don't want to teach about these principles, but they're important, and they're important for all of us. So it doesn't matter what it is, how much it is. The Bible tells us that the Lord is interested in our hearts, that we're to be cheerful givers. Even here in Deuteronomy, they loosened up the requirements because they want us to be merry, it says, and that God will bless you. Whatever your heart desires, that you shall rejoice you and your household. So if you're going to cry over it or you're going to upset, then just don't do it. If you're going to lay a burden on other people, then stop. But we should all be challenged, provoked to love and good works, the Bible says. Is the Lord first or isn't he? Something to pray about. If you're going to have an argument on your, with your spouse on the way home, God bless you, I'll pray for you. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> I will say trust God. You trust him with your soul, trust him with everything else. Let's, get, let's pray. Let's spend some time with the Lord. Like, Lord, we thank you for this, this challenge. We thank you for your word that convicts us and changes us. 
We thank you, Lord, that it's your scripture that molds us and shapes us, not culture, not ourselves, not a pastor, not a church, Lord. And we pray that as we apply our liberty, Lord, to your gospel, that you would shape us to be the people you want us to be, that we would truly be salt and light to the world as we share your grace, your unmerited favor. Let loose the bondage, Lord, the chains that we put ourselves on, and help us to walk in the freedom of your grace. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.